welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. We're here for another episode of Clean Tech Talk. I'm Zach Shahan, CEO of Clean Technica. And today we have a special guest, one from our own team, Joe Boris, who is just amazing in all respects, good at everything, it seems like everything he touches. But he's actually got an extensive background in the auto world with different auto companies, dealers. And we were just talking about some other news this week and decided we really, well, we started talking a lot about auto dealers and the EV transition. And there was so much there. That we decided to launch, we're going to launch this Dealer Digest series of podcasts where we're going to get into this in a much more detailed, nuanced way than is typically done. So to to start off, Joe, can you give us some more background on who you are, especially with regards to the auto industry, and then we'll launch into this, this discussion. Yeah, that sounds great. So obviously, Joe Boris, I've been uh, in and around the auto industry kind of as an adult since about 1997. So I'm coming up on 25 years in motorsports and racing and dealership life and all that good stuff. But even before that, you know, I come from an automotive family. So it's just kind of always been something I've been around even as a young kid, you know. So I, I do have a lot of experience from that world. And uh, for those of you who haven't listened to uh, any of my podcasts appearances before or read too many of my articles, uh, you will soon discover that I am just madly in love with the sound of my own voice. And I apologize ahead of time to Zachary, because I will be talking over him frequently. Well, my biggest problem is my tendency to interrupt people. So I'm trying, I I try to really (laughs) not do that on podcasts, but it still happens. You can't help it sometimes. If you're having a good time, you're having a good conversation. You always want to interject and, you know, you want to keep the energy high. And I think that that's something really important when we talk about the transition to EVs and when we talk about electrification is if we talk about it in a way that is like, you know, first of all, we're the converted, right? The people listening to clean tech talk, they're already converted. We already know the benefits of electrification. We already believe in the product. We're not changing any hearts and minds here, but the way that we're going to do that is not by lecturing or scolding people. You're not going to get a guy who's driving a Dodge Hellcat to consider a Nissan Leaf because the environment and it's good for the kids and you know he's going to save money on gas. That guy doesn't care. But if you can tell him, look, your Hellcat's kind of a little wussy girl car because my you know electric Model Three is going to blow its doors off and I'm only going to pay a dollar seventy five to fill it up. Now you might have that guy's attention. So I think if we can keep the energy up, keep it positive, keep it fun, we're going to reach a lot more people than if it's just like. Now we must all be electric because the future is electric. And that is cool. I have a relative who's a big Hellcat fan. And I, I'm not sure <laughs> if you're actually allowed to say the word Tesla around him. I'm not, he's, a, he's a cool guy. He's a very funny guy. But uh, to be honest, I think there's... Say Mustang. Say Mustang Mach-E. See how his Hellcat <laughs> oh, does against oh, that thing in the eighth. That would be fun. Yeah. So... But what, so what we were talking about a bit was, you know, we had, had a recent story about, well, we've had a lot of, we've had a a lot lot of stories stories. (laughs) and everybody in the industry has had stories about auto dealers being a big barrier to EV adoption and EV sales. But we had this one on, on Ford, a Ford dealer 
you know, marking up the Mach E. And that's his, you know, this has been happening yeah. all year. Yeah. And so this is something that's really interesting, right? Because I think that w- the, the way that this conversation came up was a, a customer went into a Ford dealership. He wanted to buy a Mach E and the dealer was marking it up. I think it was like $10,000, $10,500. And he had gone back and forth in, in a Twitter exchange with a, a Ford executive, or I don't think it was even a Twitter exchange, it was an email exchange with a Ford executive, allegedly who told him, yeah, then, you know, maybe you should go buy a Tesla because if you don't want to negotiate or deal with our dealers, we're done. And a lot of people kind of took the side of like, you know, poo-pooing Ford and saying, Hey, this is, this is not good practice. This isn't the way it works. And, and, and specifically pointing at the dealer saying the dealer did them wrong. And I kind of said, look, I want to give everybody the benefit of the doubt here. And it's so often, especially when it comes to car dealers, If there's something you don't know or something that you're not aware of happening in the background, it's so easy to give it a malicious spin, right? And there's that that term in philosophy where it's like, never, never attribute to malice what you can attribute to stupidity. You know, so like, it's kind of like that. Like, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes because you're not in that dealership world. So the, the comment that I had, which kind of led to all this was, I think this is an allocation issue. And what that really means, allocation is, let's say a dealership has 1,500 dealers nationwide, and they're going to come out with a special edition, and an OEM is going to come out with a special edition. You know, we're talking about Ford, so we'll talk about a special edition Mustang, a GT350 Shelby. And they're only going to make 500 of those. Well, there's more than 500 dealers. So how do they decide what dealer gets what? It's not actually the case that you can walk into any dealership and buy any car that the OEM sells because of the allocation, some of those dealers are not going to get that car and they can't sell it to you. Or if they do get that car and they are able to sell it, they may only get one. They may only get, they may only get two. So they're going to want to get as much money as possible for that vehicle. Now, if that goes away, if that allocation system goes away and the dealer could in fact get as many of whatever vehicle as they wanted ordered to the customer spec, I think you would see that that demand curve goes down and we'd start to see better pricing. I think it's an OEM issue, frankly, yeah. not a dealer issue. Yeah. And I was going to write an article about that myself and I, I hopefully will before this goes live, but I, I would just try to extra emphasize, you know, say you've got a business and you've got a really hot product and there's, you only have one of them to sell. Are you going to sell that for the MSRP or are you going to sell that to make maximum profit? And, you know, I mean, just, just put yourself in those shoes for a minute. Like you're obviously going to sell it for as much as you can sell it for, and you're going to make as much money on it as you can, because you're in business. So I think there is the big issue definitely is that there's higher demand for the Maki than there is production. We had a scoop, you know, I, I, I had a scoop from the, the battery factory where, all the batteries for the Mustang Mach-E are produced in Poland globally. And they were ramping up. Oh, I didn't up, know that. This was a few months ago, but they were yeah. ramping up battery production for the Mach-E really a lot. And this is still, you know, this is battery cells. So I would say there is behind the scenes plans to ramp up production of the Mach-E that are not really out yet. This was, I think, a rather early scoop on big production increase there could be wrong information but the person i talked to is not just a line worker and yeah is he, w- he wouldn't make a really a mistake on this so 
I, I mean, think he or that's she. Fair because so I think there is, but at the same time, there's so much demand, so much more demand than there was expected to be, or that they're prepared to satisfy. That you have this issue, and you have the same with Tesla. They're raising prices because of a demand supply imbalance. Yeah, that's absolutely right, and I think that you know there is a little bit of a surprise, especially from some of the legacy automakers that don't understand the demand that's out there for electrification. I was looking at, I don't know if you're familiar with Cox Automotive. Cox Automotive is a huge company. They, they kind of exist behind the scenes, but for the most part, if you've been in a car dealership, that dealership is a customer of Cox Automotive, right? So they run their computer system, they run their internet, they run their online, even their website is usually designed by Cox Automotive and handled through that software package. And they were showing that, you know, the market as a whole, you see a lot of things is kind of down, but the percent of electrified vehicles, and, and, I, and I know electrified is not the same thing as electric. I'm, I'm not saying it is, but they are conflating the two. But the, the percent of electrified vehicles sold in the last quarter was just about, it was just under 9%, which from one year ago, it was 7%. And it's not necessarily that that's all there is to buy, right? Because if you don't want an electric, you can certainly find non-electric vehicles. The fact that the market is growing and that it's actually growing, that leap from seven to 8% is like a 15% leap. And it's growing that much more quickly than the rest of the market, which is actually shrinking. I, I think that's that's a tremendous indicator of the way this is going. And I think that if you had sat down at a Ford meeting before CES 2019, before the Mach-E was displayed, you would have a hard time convincing a lot of those guys that, yeah, if we make an electric Mustang, it's going to outsell the V8 version. It's going to outsell the V6. And that's what we have. That's an, what, an electric crossover, a highly controversial co crossover electric version of the Mustang. You know, it's hard to judge. <laughs> I mean, you can do focus, you can do tests, but it's like, it's hard to judge study groups, whatever. It's, it's still until it hits the market. I think there's hard, hard forecasting job there. Uh, and just, let's also highlight, you know, EVs are about 20% of new car sales in Europe now, which has been a humongous yes. boom. And we had Martin Vinkhausen write uh, a couple of articles about this in the past that basically the U.S. is the U.S. gets the crumbs. Like, like Europe requires a high high electrification rate. China requires it. So when it comes down to it, there's not so much of a requirement in the U.S. So the U.S. gets whatever's left over. Or, or just just enough to have a presence, really. And even in the case of the Mustang Mach-E, Ford is not huge in Europe, but it's there. And the Mustang Mach-E is selling very well there. But again, it's just selling as much as Ford can deliver. Who knows how many it could sell if if they could produce enough, you know, as much as demand is, is asking yeah. for. That's like the Toyota Camry LE. What does LE stand for? Limited edition. Oh, it's limited? Yeah, it's limited by how many they can sell. But <laughs> it's like an old joke old dealer joke, sorry. But I think that's an interesting point, right? Because if you go back when you and I started doing this and we started doing Clean Technica and Gas 2 and all those things right around the same time, 2008, 2009-ish, right? If you went back to that time, the US was still like the most important car market. China was becoming important, but the so US... <laughs> Go ahead. So, it's so true and so sad to think back to that time when the you know we've we've lost. I mean, the U.S. was like big. It was like the big EV market. Oh my gosh! And now it's so so low compared to 
Europe, but it's China. not just EVs. It's everything, right? I mean, the AMG. So Mercedes-Benz has their performance brand, right? So, you know, if I'm on a, if I'm on Truth About Cars or something, I assume everybody knows what AMG is. On Clean Tech Talk, I feel the need to explain. <laughs> so this is essentially. You take the engine from the biggest, heaviest Mercedes and you put it in the smallest, lightest Mercedes and it goes fast. And just, AMG, just, say, it's, just say it's the unplugged performance version of for, it's the <laughs> unplugged performance version no, of the Mercedes. Exactly. Yeah. It's the high pollution option, which is that's a whole other conversation, but that's not even the fastest option anymore. But in, in any event, so the allocation for that used to be like 60% US, 30%. Europe and like 10% Asia. And this is, we're talking 2000, 2005 when I was, uh, you know, really big in Mercedes. So that has now shifted where China, Asia, Middle East, which was not really in the nineties, that wasn't a market at all, really early two thousands. It was just kind of becoming a market. Now that's a major market for premium brands. And the U S is kind of a little bit left behind. I don't know. Uh, I, I'm not smart enough. I'm not an economist. I couldn't tell you really why that has happened. But I think at the end of the day, it, it, it's it's really yeah. sad. And, and I don't know how much <laughs> the OEMs or the dealers have to play in that. The U.S. is the old the old teammate with the bad knees. <laughs> We're the old teammate with the bad knees. <laughs> Overweight. <Yeah. laughs> no, we, I mean, obviously, Europe, you know, just required much stronger fuel economy. And there was a period of time, like five years ago, when German automakers were lobbying hard to water those down. And the same thing was happening in China. China had sort of strong requirements coming, and there was big effort to water those down. And they didn't work, you know, I, as a Tesla you know, Tesla guy, you know, I would emphasize that I think a lot of that is because Tesla showed there was humongous demand for EVs if you built com compelling EVs. And so politicians who really wanted to be a part of leading the transition said, hey, you know, I don't really buy this. That consumers don't want it. I saw there's this many reservations for the Model 3, you know, make some good EVs. We don't want to die here because you're slow. So I think that's what happened. And in any case, what, what happened is they got strong regulations and automakers have to sell uh, higher portions. And there's only so much battery supply out there. And, and you know, of course, they're going to go into a new market with with some caution. And so the, you know, they announced 50,000 uh, Mach-E's was the production capacity for the first year. And a lot of people thought, oh, that meant the US, but actually a lot of those go to Europe. So then you just, you just have, a, I mean, the, the car is awesome. We had it for a week, we loved it. It's an awesome vehicle. A lot of people want it, maybe more than Ford expected. And there's just, there's not enough supply for the demand. So dealers are gonna make as much money as possible. They're going to make as much money as possible. And uh, until, you know, and that's one of the things where, you know, if, if you could buy, if you could order direct from the dealer, anything that you wanted as, or not from the dealer, I'm sorry, from the manufacturer, anything that you wanted as a dealer and it, they couldn't limit it, right? Like they're going to, they're going to build as many GT three fifties as people want to buy. Um, you know, that's, that's going to keep the, that's going to keep that uh, practice of marking up prices and ballooning prices down. Yeah, well, can you one... give? Can, yeah, can you give some perspective on those two? The two two possibilities. One, the possibility of consumers being able to buy directly from manufacturers through their website, and and really not have to deal with dealer markups, and the possibility of more and more consumers 
well, any other options to going through the normal dealer route? Like, do you think that the buying options are going to change a lot in the next five years or so? I think they're going to change from what we have become used to since the 80s. But I, I'm to give you guys a bit of history in the 1960s, the 1970s, you know, if you were going to buy a car, you would go into a dealership and it would be a relatively small building. Like if you look at the Frank Lloyd Wright dealership that was that Frank Lloyd Wright built in Manhattan, it's a Mercedes dealership and it's kind of the size of a Starbucks. It's not a huge thing. Oh, yeah. I'm very uh, familiar with that dealership. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Well, it's, you know, if you're into architecture, you're probably, you're probably familiar with it, right? It's a Frank Lloyd Wright car dealership. Who's not going to know about that? Everyone should Um, Google it, right? Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a great move. Go Google it. It's not there anymore. I don't think, but in in any event, it, it was a small store. And the idea was that you would go into the store, you would test drive the demo, right? The, and, or there'd be one or two on the floor to show you what it looked like. And then there would be an order book and you would pick the color of paint. You would pick the interior leather that you wanted or the interior vinyl or, or back then even the cloth because Mercedes had uh, this wonderful plaid cloth that I just thought was great looking. And you would order your vehicle. They would send it out and then a couple of weeks would go by and it would show up and they would call you and say, your car is ready and you would go pick it up. And that's how dealerships used to work. And it wasn't until Toyota really came along And, you know, in the early 80s, it was Japan was going to take over the world and Toyota was the leader, right? So Toyota was building these cars in essentially just three versions. You could get like the base, the the SE, and then the LE. And the LE was a little bit nicer, had a couple of different features, maybe power windows, cruise control. But like none of them came with tape decks. If you wanted a tape deck, the dealer would install it on site. But you basically had just those three models and those three trim packages. And that's what started this idea of dealers storehousing vehicles, because, you know, you, if you wanted to order a Toyota, it would take forever to get it made in Japan, put on a freighter sent over. So they couldn't compete that way. So it really became almost like the fast food option of cars. And they started selling like crazy. Like, why would you wait five, six weeks for, a car to get shipped to you from Detroit. If you want a new car, you can get one now. And the quality was great because, you know, when you're mass producing something and you're building it a hundred thousand times, you can really get that QC down versus when you're essentially hand building these cars. And that really drove prices down and changed the way that we bought cars. So the, the core point there was that actually Tesla copied Mercedes with the plaid thing. That was the, it wasn't just Mercedes. Giving. Yeah. Well, oh, hundred uh, percent. No, no, but, no, but I, I think I got the message, right? The thing that that's all I heard really was no, 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 no. More seriously. When was that? When was so that, that would be like in the sixties and into the seventies, there was actually a novel written called Detroit that goes really into it very well about the order sheets and the order, how the cars were built on the line. But more importantly, I think it wasn't just Mercedes Benz. It was also Ford. It was also Dodge and Chrysler. There were small stores that had a limited number of vehicles and, and you would order them from the book. And that seems to be what we're going back to because with the chip shortage, with the supply line shortage, it doesn't make economic sense to build cars that may be unprofitable, you know, low dollar cars with basic trim. If nobody, if they are not guaranteed a home before that they get built. 
So you're starting to see shrinking dealer inventory. You're starting to see a greater emphasis on pre-orders, on ordering the vehicles online. And you'll see that kind of continue. And the dealers that understand that that's where it's going and they make it easy for their customers to do that. And they make it an enjoyable experience and they make it a consultative visit so that when you're there with the dealer, they're explaining different trim levels and different options to you. I had one example when I was at a Volvo store, the customer didn't want the suede seats because he says, oh no, I have kids. I don't want the suede. And I was like, whoa, this isn't really suede. This is Alcantara. It's a synthetic material. It's almost like a Nova suede. You know, it's got Scotch guard almost built into it. Cause it's kind of this like plasticky kind of material. And like, you can clean it. Like you can clean it way easier than cloth, way easier than leather. If you like the look of it and your only concern is the stains, this is the one you should buy. And that kind of consultative process is going to determine who survives, right? The guys that are like, what can I do to get you into this minivan today? Those guys are, those guys are already dead. They just haven't figured it out yet. This is not your 1970s hippie suede. Yeah, this is, no, this is actually, it's funny because this is actually basically the second part of Martin's argument for why the the U.S. gets crumbs. It's not just the regulations, it's also the dealer process, which that that old process, which you say is coming back, is the European process, basically. And, and, you know, his point is it's much easier to order an EV in the, in Europe rather than go to a dealer in the U S and be tried to have them try to ups, you know, sell you to a switch you to an ice uh, vehicle, but which they've already paid for again, yeah, you know, to, to give them the benefit of the doubt, right. You're you've got a, uh, you know, you've got a paper store and you've got 600 reams of 20 pound goldenrod, right? Cause like we've all watched the office and Dunder Mifflin is great. So you've got this giant stack of this yellow paper and someone calls and says, yeah, I want yellow paper, but I'm not really sure about this particular shade. You know, you're going to try to talk them into it because you've already paid for that. It's sitting in your shelf. You need to move it to keep your business going. But now If you remove that, if you remove that need, if you remove that need to move product quickly, that a lot of those problems and a lot of those, you know, pressure, high pressure tactics, not only do they not work, they no longer become necessary. And I think that that's something that's going to be very positive. Well, the funny thing is I've seen people respond to Martin's piece or when that's brought up elsewhere is like, you can actually do that in the U.S. You know, people will say you can you can order custom. You know, you can custom order a car. You just have to wait longer. You just don't get it off the lot. So, can you give a little bit more perspective on um, which automakers you can do this with now? If it's difficult, if there's what's yeah. how, and how it's coming back as well. Like why why is it coming back or or how? Well, it, it, sure. So I'll I'll speak to the the automakers that I have direct experience with are Mercedes Benz, Porsche, and Volvo. And I, I worked very briefly at a Chrysler store in the late nineties. I, I couldn't tell you how Chrysler operates today, but I, I have a pretty, I have a pretty firm grasp of how Volvo and those other Wait, stores. Chrysler, operate. Chrysler still alive. Right. They're, yeah, I'm just they're, they're I out see, there. I see Pacifica minivans around. That's true. Stellantis. I, I got to tell you those Jeeps, the four by E Wranglers, they are everywhere in Chicago, which is so stupid because we are miles from any kind of dirt, but like, I guess the potholes are so bad that you feel the need for an off-road military vehicle. Oh, we, we have a lot here in flat Florida as well. It's just, Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So 
let me speak to Volvo because I, again, I know a lot about Volvo and I, I know I'm a big Volvo fanboy in the same way that you're a Tesla fan. So I apologize in advance, but I, it, that's where no, and I would, I would emphasize, you know, I think the best person to talk to is a fanboy about anything because they will know the, the topic, the product or the company better than anyone. And you can really learn if you have an open mind. So I'm, I'm all about, I'm all about it. Beautiful. So let's talk about Volvo's process. So they have a process in the U.S. called overseas delivery. And what that is, is you can go buy the vehicle, you go to the dealership, you go through that consultative process, you choose the car, the color, the interior. And what's neat about it is you can order combinations that don't normally exist. So like there's like a, a guards red, a very bright red that they never had as a regular offering in like the S60 sedan. And when I was at a dealership here in Chicago, we would order, we would special order a bunch of them and we would send a sales guy to Sweden and he would go to the factory and they give you a little factory tour. You can see your car, you know, being delivered and they walk you through it. And then you take a couple of days, you know, you tour Sweden or whatever, then you take it to the dock. It goes on a ship. They fly you back home. And it's the same price as buying a vehicle right off the lot. They essentially pay for your vacation. So like, why would you not do that if you don't want to go to Sweden, I guess, but it was a very simple, straightforward process, but you had to wait, you had to wait a couple of months. And I think that we maybe as a culture have gone away from that. And I don't want to have a larger philosophical discussion Just say it, Joe, here. just say it, just get, it, get, get bold. I know you yeah. can talk. There's, Let's go. there's well, I mean, like, you know, the, there's the sense of if I can't get it now, it's not worth waiting for. Right. You know, that's why generationally speaking, I think a lot of people don't have a lot of forward sight and they think, well, you know, if I buy this thing now in six months from now, I won't even want it anymore. And, you know, that's where you have the 24 month lease and the 18 month lease. And now there's a company called Ferry in Texas that's now doing a six month lease, which like, what am I like a car in six months? I'm not even going to figure out how to use the radio in six months. Like, give me a break, dude. Like that's insanity. But the way that they've done it is actually very smart, right? Like, okay, you're a consumer. You don't want to keep this thing for a long time. You want to stay on top of the tech. We'll give you a way to do that. That is financially viable. And then at the end of the six months, we've got a car that we can sell. It's a super hot used car market right now. We're buying everything at MSRP. Maybe I'll be able to sell it. I mean, in the last year I have an XC90, the SUV, and I, it's like my third one. And I, I get emails all the time and, you know, I'm friends with the guys at the dealership and they're just like, yeah, if you want to trade that thing in, we'll give you more than you paid for it two years ago. It's like, that's insane. And the only reason I wouldn't do it is because there's nothing for me to buy. Exactly. Yeah. I, I love the stories. Oh, I, I made, I made money selling my old, my used, uh, but then you had to buy something that was also. Hyper, yeah. It, yeah, <laughs> it only works if you don't have to replace it. Right. Like yeah. if I don't, if I don't have to replace the car, then great. But I, I think that it's a very interesting thing. And I think that, you know, the, the thing that speaks to this the most, in my opinion, and I think this is something that merits its own episode, and we can talk to that a little bit, is when Cadillac put out their new dealership plan to transform everybody into electric, there was about 850 to 900 Cadillac dealers in the US. And they said, look, you're going to adopt this plan or we'll give you 500,000 and you can go home. And like, 150, 200 Cadillac dealers took that payoff. They took the $500,000. And this has kind of been painted as these dealers don't want to sell electric cars. They don't want to sell EVs. But I don't think that's really fair because if you own a dealership, you're making more than 500 grand a year. You're making 
at least a million dollars or else why are you in business? It's a lot of liability. It's a lot of problems, a lot of stress. There's no point to it. So for those guys to walk away with, to essentially sell their license to print money for what amounts to a six month paycheck and they lose the real estate, they lose the investment, they lose the power, right? The community influence that they have, they lose all of it for 500,000. It doesn't matter how much you love or hate the concept of an electric car. I mean, you might think electric car equals socialism and I'm an American and I'm going to go shoot the electric cars with my AR-15. That could be who you are. You're still not going to walk away from millions of dollars. So I don't think that that's a statement about electric cars. I think that that's a statement about the relationship that the dealers have with the OEM. And I think that that's a statement of trust, right? The Cadillac dealers are saying, We don't trust GM to make this plan. We don't trust GM to make this transition. We're going to opt out. And I I think that that's, uh, that's, you think it's a buffet, you think it's a buffet of reasons? Like there are some dealers who are like, look, I'm 60, I'm 70. I've made a fortune. I'm ready. I'm not going to go along with this transition. I don't believe in, I'm just going to cash out and go golf in Florida or something. Absolutely not. Cause it's not cashing out. $500,000 $500,000 is nothing right. to these people. They make, you know, little Bob Wilson Dodge back in 1996, 97, when I was working there outside of Tampa, like right by USF, there's this little Dodge store. It wasn't Chrysler, Dodge, Plymouth Jeep. It was just Dodge. And that one little tiny store with that one product line was making three fifty to 400000 in profit from the sales department every month. So a five hundred thousand yeah. dollar paycheck. Why are we doing media? I forget. This is what. <laughs> this is interesting perspective. I would also ask. So this is about Cadillac. Is there also just a kind of Cadillac is not has not been doing as well and in certain places and and dealers are just like well I I have I sell other brands I don't need to sell Cadillac anymore like it's not really my my meal ticket anyway. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think Cadillac as a brand has been struggling for many years trying to figure out its identity. I think they had a very strong identity for a long time as kind of like this big luxurious thing. And then somewhere along the line, they kind of lost their way. They tried to be like an American Mercedes and then they tried to be an American BMW. And then they tried to be like an American Alfa Romeo at one point when they had Pininfarina designing all their cars in the early 90s. And, it, and the you know, big it, problem is just that everybody associated Cadillac with their grandpa. <laughs> everyone associated Cadillac with their grandpa, but it, that's an interesting point, right? Because like, you know, it, that's a generational thing because if you're like a Gen Z, like my kid, my oldest who just started college, this actually this semester is in his first semester of college. So yay. I know. Right. He used to be little, but anyway, um, gee, oh my gosh, that's I know, wild. I know. It's so upsetting. But, you know, I I think that if he saw a big Cadillac, what he thinks of Cadillac is the Escalade, which is a giant SUV. And what I think of Cadillac was, yeah, my dad's Cadillac, which was like a, you know, either an Eldorado or a Seville or something, which was a totally different animal from like a CTS V6 ii or whatever the hell they're yeah. called now yeah as i was thinking about what what uh, how i was gonna say that last thing i was i realized i have two sections of my brain for cadillac i have one for all the all the escalades that are in the that the moms are driving in the pickup line at the elementary school yes <laughs> and i have one for grandpa and and his cadillac and that whole era of cadillac and i realized like okay 
there's two different Cadillacs in my head. Like, this is a problem. Like, what am I thinking, actually? Am I out of my mind? But it, but it is, like, it's very different. And they tried to revive that other Cadillac. Like, it had that Super Bowl ad with the ELR and the workaholic American who was like, I don't need a vacation fake he's a good good actor he's like like what are you talking about vacation i work hard and i earn my cadillac elr you know you remember this super yeah cool i i do i do but now but that's the cadillac dealer right like if you i mean i could i could show you dealers that were 80 years old that still go into the dealership every day and crack the whip and there's three and four generations deep of you know dealership families and you know, they're selling to these conglomerates like Lithia or AutoNation. So you see these small, like three or four rooftop dealer networks being bought up and being merged and they're doing stock exchanges and things like that. And it's just the $500,000. It's just not enough money. It's not a cash out. It's something, it's something else. And, And I'll say this, GM did not expect that. They did not expect to lose 150 dealers like that. And the rest of the industry didn't expect it. I think that, you know, when you talk about, you know, the other stores that are seeing that when you read automotive news, which is a a magazine that all the dealers get, it's like required reading. If you're a car dealer, for some reason, when you get those magazines and you read them, you, there is kind of this like undertone of like, what the heck is happening? What's going on? Why is this so negative? And then you see that. And then on the flip side of that, you have, you know, President Biden talking about how GM is the leader in electrification and we wouldn't be here without General Motors. And there's a lot of people who are not at the table, right? Like, you know, Elon Musk at Tesla, say what you will about the guy. I mean, like, I, I, I have my question marks about Elon and I always have where like, I, I have a hard time. And this is just me. I have a hard time reconciling someone saying that they're on a mission to create a sustainable future and colonize Mars on one hand and on the other hand, hoarding billions of dollars, you know, putting a bunch of ridiculous memes on Twitter and talking about how he's going to deliver warheads anywhere on the planet within one hour with his new SpaceX rocket. Like I have a hard time reconciling the guy, but I think we're all complicated people. And if I had $300 billion, I'd make some complicated choices. So this, it's a judgment free thing, but you cannot deny that the reason Volkswagen is making a switch to all electric is because of Tesla. And the reason that Mercedes-Benz is building an EQS, the Mercedes EQS is in just about every way, an objectively better car than the Model S. It's more dynamic. It has better range. It has more efficient batteries. It's built to a higher standard. It has thicker paint. It has, you know, more structural steel. Like you can't objectively say this machine is better than that machine in in terms of the tesla but the most interesting thing about the eqs has nothing to do with any of that it's a hatchback for the first time ever mercedes is building this hatchback body style and it is exactly like the model s their entire business plan for the eqs is we're going after the model s buyer who wants a little bit nicer car that they don't want to deal with any quality issues. That's their whole business plan. And when the entire industry of established industry giants that have been around for a hundred years, their whole business plan is how we're going to compete with this little American startup. You you have to take your hat off to the guy. And we are having this conversation because of Elon Musk. So yay, Elon. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of uh, tempting stuff to comment on there, but I would, I, the funny thing with the highlighting GM to me also is, 
like Ford. <laughs> like, like it's, it's one thing if you just want to exclude Tesla because you have a you have some issues with Tesla and Elon because of you know him tweeting uh, something like COVID will be over in April 2020 and you know liberate America that kind of stuff. Like if you want to stay away from that, that's one thing. But and I'm not condoning it. I think it's a really bad PR. Pop, this is a, this is a judgment. This is a judgment free zone. Yeah, but but I just. <laughs> I, I don't want to focus on that that whole thing, which is has plenty of discussion going on. I I the thing that keeps intriguing me a little bit is like why he focuses on GM instead of Ford, where obviously GM had the Volt and they had the EV1. Ford is likely to sell more EVs in the US this year than GM. The, the but you the, but you already know the answer to this. You already know the answer to this because where is Ford building those batteries? Well, yeah, in Poland. <laughs> They're building them in and, Poland. And GM and the, is building must, a factory. GM yeah. is building a factory in the US in a, a red state that they're trying to flip blue. Yeah. But so it's still like like there. I mean, do they I don't know the connections with Ford and all that, but it seems a little funny to to really emphasize. I mean, yeah, you have good points. Of course, Michigan, they need votes in Michigan. They need those badly. But Ford is also there, you know, and you're also pissing off some Ford fans, maybe. And but then also, I mean, I wonder how much the the history of the EV1 and the Chevy Volt are highlighted as leadership in some segments of the industry or the population. And, and you know, Biden has been told, look, they led with the EV1, they led with the Chevy Volt, they led with the Chevy Bolt, they're, they're leading. And, you know, how much, how much some people might think, yeah, that they just have a history of leadership in EVs. Which, well, that's you know, all there's half truths, half truths there. Half truths there. <laughs> there are a lot of issues, obviously. Like, you know, the, the EV1 is an infamous story. The, the, the Volt basically, you know, they never did anything with that powertrain. And the Bolt, you know, never lived up to its Tesla killer um, mission. So it's like, like there are a lot no, of issues. No, and it never, it never would have. I mean, you can't, yeah. you can't do that. But I will say this, and, and you bring up a good point because you're talking about the, the Ford fans, right? And there, there is a rivalry there. There's like, it's almost like a football team. Like, you know, you, you never really know what you're cheering for, but you know, you're cheering for the guy in that shirt on that day. He might wear a different shirt next year. He might've worn a different shirt the year before, but right now he's in your shirt and you like him. You know, remember two things. Number one, Joe Biden's 79 years old. The guy's almost 80 years old. 20 years ago when that EV1 came out that probably doesn't seem like a long time to him. I mean I'm in my 40s and it doesn't seem like a long time. So maybe it's a little fresher in his memory than it is in ours. And you know the other point of that is he's a Corvette guy. Like if you do your research Joe Biden yes. he's had he's had Camaros, he's had a bunch of Corvettes and like real like nice stuff. So we may be talking about we, something we as could. simple as he's a Chevy guy. Exactly. He's yeah. He's just yeah. a Chevy guy. So no matter what yeah. happens, he's a Chevy guy. He's gonna love and, Chevys. So and he says so. he's a car guy, but maybe he's really he's, you know overgeneralizing there, and he's a Chevy guy. And I mean, he's think about guy, yeah. what if you know, in a 19 year old Tesla fanboy becomes president in 60 years, and he decides to focus on Tesla's leadership when Tesla maybe is not the the hot new dog anymore. You know, it's like you, you, oh, that's a really can good you imagine point. that. <laughs> I can't like imagine that like we're sitting here, we're all driving around and like some uh, like we're all driving lucids and rivians, right? You know, Nicola finally gets a truck that goes down a hill under its own power instead of yeah, gravity. Nicola Motors becomes the hot innovative leader in 60 yeah. years. And, and then uh, we've got some 79 year old president Zachary Shahan up there going, 
Tesla's the greatest. No, no not me. Away. Like a nineteen, a nineteen-year-old who grew up with Tesla, like dominating, becoming the most valuable company in the world. You know, yeah. uh, I mean, uh, automaker in the world. Elon becoming the richest, and I mean that is cement. If you're nineteen, that is cemented in your consciousness forever in a very big way. You know, it's like that's wild. That's such a good point because, you know, how are you going to explain that? in 50 years, it's gotta be the way that people talked about the model T, right? Like the way that my grandparents talked to me about the model T, uh, because again, they were, you know, my, my grandfather was a Ford guy. He worked for Ford. So, you know, he would talk about the model T and how that kind of changed everything for everybody. I mean, to, to give you an extent of how crazy it is, we all put gasoline in our cars for the better part of a century because Henry Ford decided that gasoline was going to run the Model T. It was like, I'm sick of dealing with these ethanol idiots. I don't want to buy kerosene from the dealers anymore. Oh, what's this gasoline waste product? Is it flammable? Cool. I'm going to use that. And like his, his, wife, his wife was into EVs. She, she bought electrics. She bought electrics. competitors. Yeah. Right. But again, like, think about that. Think about the kind of influence that one company with the right product and the right marketing and the right attitude can have. And I think that's what you're and seeing. Biden missed that era. Biden missed the Model T, but then he, he missed became, the Model he, T. I don't know. I don't know when he came of age. I don't know. You you might know what cars, what the car world was like when he came of age. But I mean, yeah, it would have been General case, Motors. As you point out, I mean, he was 59 when the EV1 was a big EV you know, leader. I mean, this is in his head, you know? And I mean, yeah. and I don't think it's just him. I think it's about advisors. It's about all kinds of things, needing to win Michigan, whatever. But anyway, we, we went down a big, interesting tangent there. But I think but we've, I, we've covered one thing I would just want to finish with. And, and you know, we really want to make this a more frequent thing. So we try not to make them too long and just do them more frequently. But I just wanted still, I'm not sure if how much you answered why and how it's switching to that older model of buying. Oh, sure. It's switching out of necessity because they simply, the manufacturers cannot build as many vehicles as they had been building. Right. So think of it like in terms of McDonald's, you know, you have a, a 99 cent cheeseburger and you can make as many of those as you want. There's an infinite supply of beef and cheese and bread, and you're just going now, all of a sudden there's a meat shortage, right? Well, now you've got to be careful. You've only got 20 pounds of meat. So are you going to turn that 20 pounds of meat into, you know, 40, you know, or 40 or 50 little cheeseburgers that you sell for a dollar, or are you going to have a premium cheeseburger that you can sell for $6, right? So now you're trying to build that value based on that limited resource. So you're trying to sell your most expensive product rather than volume. So instead of stocking the dealerships with 150, you know, Ford focuses and advertising the lowest prices anywhere, and you can come in here and save thousands. Now it's more about how you can differentiate yourself experientially and get someone to come in and spend 40 or $50,000 because the average sale price of a vehicle last year in the United States was over $42,000. So think about that. The average new car transaction price was over $40,000. So you know, it that's was 30, it was 35,000 just a few years ago. So you know, it, it jumped really high. And the reason for that being, Again, if you're only going to get 40 cars on your lot, you're going to get as much money for those 40 cars as you can, because the option of making it up in volume, which is what a lot of these dealers had been doing, which is a high pressure environment, 
you know, a, what we would call a grinder or hammer house where they would just sell 150, 200, 300 cars a month. You know, Sherman Dodge here in Chicago, they were selling 300 units a month and they were making sometimes big margins, but for the most part, they were discounting and offering rebates and things like that, but they were cranking out cars. They can't do that now because they don't have 300 cars. So now they've got to play it a little bit differently. They've got to buy a more premium model. They've got to wait for the right guy to come along. And then they've got to hold their ground on price because they're not going to make it up on volume. So I think that's. And then are they also funneling people into like custom orders and waiting a few months? They have to, they have no other choice. If they want to keep that Mm -hmm. customer, they're going to give them, they're going to try to give them a reason to do business there that day. And if they're, and if it's not on a car that they have, instead of saying, yeah, they're going to try. They're going to try to switch it to there. And what you'll start to see now is dealers used to be really big on doing dealer trades where like if I had a, a blue X90 yeah. and you had a red one and I wanted to sell the red one, I could trade with you if you were you know, amenable to it. You're going to see that go away too because the other dealer doesn't have inventory. They're just not sitting on inventory the way they used to be. Well, this is fascinating. I think this is a great intro and we're, we're really going to make a real series out of this. And I think each episode, we can sort of focus on one topic. Of course, we'll get onto side topics, which will be fun, but, but, we, can, <laughs> but we can try to focus on one topic. So, you know, if people want to learn about something yeah. or hear a lot about something, you know, it'd be right there in the title. And that'll be the sort of the, the focus yeah. area. But this is but, good. This is a good sort of yeah. like overview, get to know each other. This is exactly. who you're going to be listening to. You know, exactly. you can't stand this guy. Don't come back for more. <laughs> yeah, no, I think we really needed to sort of lay out kind of a, a, you know, show how much nuance was out there, you know, sort of run all around the the, the, the yard, hit, hit all the corners of the. Chuck yeah, e. and then we'll come back. Exactly. We, yeah. we, we ran around the Chuck E. Cheese and now we're going to come back and, and put the quarters in the games that look good. Yeah, full disclosure, I've never been to a Chuck E. Cheese, I don't think. But You've never been like to fun. a Chuck E. Cheese? That is they bad. always look like fun, that's for sure. But I feel for <laughs> some reason, that, for some reason, no, for some reason, I, I just came to mind. We ran around all the corners of the Chuck E. Cheese for some reason. But uh, I yeah, I, th- I think we, we sort of did. So, Next time uh, you're in Chicago, I'm taking you to Chuck E. Cheese. Sounds good. <laughs> I'm all about it. <laughs> all right, later, buddy. Cheers. Chuck E. Cheese and pierogi. We'll find some Chuck E. Cheese <laughs> and some pierogi. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Walk, 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 walk,